417, chapters 23 and 24 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 1010. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover. And I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 417, Laborious. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello! I hope you are well. I am well. And as I record this, my sister is in labor. So, that's all the news I've got on that front. But what that means for us is that this week will be pretty quick, and next week, if I manage to pull it off, will be pretty quick as well. And then we'll have to play it by ear from that point on. And because of that... This week, even though we recorded Crafty Chat, I haven't had time to select the audio for the Crafty Chat. So, if you are interested in seeing a DNA double helix beaded bracelet and finding out how to make t-shirt yarn, you'll have to tune on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash lowercase c slash craftlet dash channel. Or you can click on the link in the sidebar at craftlet.com in the upper right. So not only do we not have any crafty chat that I was able to extract for this episode, but I also wasn't able to get the Paris talk done either because by the time you hear this, my sister has had her baby. She had her baby on Wednesday, late afternoon, early evening, and eight pounds, eight ounces. Uh, Healthy baby, healthy mom. Just took a little while to come out. But because of all that excitement and everything else, there went my week. So I do have an announcement from Diane, and that is that one of our tour goers is looking for a roommate. So if you were fretting that you wanted to go, but you didn't want to have to get a room all by yourself, we have a room available for you to share. Call and let Diane know if you're interested at 1-800-826-2266. Well, along with the baby arriving after I did the main recording for this episode, I also got a voicemail that I think you will enjoy. This comes from Ken in Honolulu. And Ken makes some very interesting points about me and men and the podcast. Have a listen. Hi, this is Ken from Honolulu. I heard about your craft lit stuff from Julie Davis over Forgotten Classics. I am enjoying the Count of Monte Cristo. Although I do have to say, I think you should introduce yourself to more guys because some of the comments that you make about guys are kind of funny. Early in the episodes, you were asking whether Danglar could be so upset at being called out and then by Edmond and then not fighting him on that little island, whether he could take revenge for that. Sure, he was 26, being called out by a 19 or 20-year-old and then backing down. Oh, yeah, he would be definitely humiliated and very upset. Also, you were wondering about the Abe just going off 
on the treasure later on. And yeah, he would go off on the treasure later on if he was really feeling love for Zedmond, which he was as a son, then and he knew he was probably going to die there in the prison, and he wanted Edmond to get out, and he wanted Edmond to feel his excitement and at the money and wanting to get out, not just saying, well, you know, the money's there, I'm never going to get out of here and stuff, and he wanted Edmond to try to figure a way to get out. So, of course, he was going to be excited and just talk about it incessantly. I mean, what else did they have to talk about? Well, thank you very much for a great podcast. Bye. So first off, I want to say congratulations to Ken. Because, dude, you're listening to a podcast called Craft Lit. And just the word craft alone has scared so many men off the show. Now, I'm not talking about Larry or Greg or Rob. No, no, no. I'm talking about men who at various Sheep and Wool festivals said, wow, that sounds like a podcast I'd really like, but I'm not really into crafting. It doesn't matter how many times you say you really don't have to be into crafting to enjoy the literature. You can skip all the crafty talk. Oh, yeah, but I don't know. So, Ken, my feeling is you let me know how to market this podcast to more men and we will get more men listening and giving us audio feedback, which is exactly what I love. Not only that, but I don't think you were listening during Sense and Sensibility. We hit a point in Sense and Sensibility where I realized that we hadn't ever seen books from that time period written from a male point of view. So we had some pretty interesting discussions back and forth between the listener voicemails and the show. And I think had you been listening, you probably would have chimed in too. So glad to have you here. And seriously, any ideas you have about getting more men to listen? I am all ears. I received an email from Christine, and this came in right around the time that my sister was having her baby. So I passed it off to the fabulous Justin, who does our audio editing for us. And he has read it for audio presentation for you. Now, she makes a really, really good point. And in retrospect, I really, really wish I had made the point myself, <laughs> which is so true so often with these things. But I think she she not only makes her point, but she backs it up really nicely. And so if you are in school and listening, this is an excellent example of proving a thesis. And if you are homeschooling, this audio excerpt is an excellent example of how adults can prove a thesis. So here we go with Christine's email read for you by Justin. Heather, thank you many times over for the link to the currency guide. That was by far the most confusing historical detail for me in my first time through the book. I also appreciated your explanation of Levant. Even though it's not often used today, that is the word behind the L in the ISIL acronym, so it's immediately relevant beyond the world of the book. Before listening to your comment on Edmund's broken Italian, I had a different angle on that. Essentially that he faked poor knowledge of Italian to go along with his cover identity as a shipwrecked Maltese sailor. As you've pointed out, he's no longer naive. I'll try to email you later with the references that nudge me toward that interpretation, but they're both in chapter 17, the Abbe's Cell. Here are the references from the Penguin Classics edition of the Robin Boss translation. Show me your great work on the monarchy in Italy. Faria took three of four linen rolls out of the precious cupboard, wound over on themselves like rolls of papyrus. These were bands of cloth, about four inches wide and eighteen long. Each one was numbered and covered with writing which Dantes could read, 
because it was in the Abbe's mother tongue, Italian, and as a Provençal, Dante's understood it perfectly. There is also this excerpt. Moreover, Dante's already knew Italian and a little Romaic, which he had picked up on his journeys to the east. With those two languages, he soon understood the workings of all the rest, and after six months had started to speak Spanish, English, and German. So, Heather, what do you think? Am I reading too much into those? So, yeah, duh. Of course he knew how to speak it, and he had to fake doing a bad job of it. And, oh, by the way, Heather, we're going to see a lot more of that, because Edmond is really smart. You know, it's like when I was teaching in the city, and I had people come up to me and say, oh, I'm sure your students are very street smart, which was true. I mean, they were certainly street smarter than I was, but what that was code for is not book learned as much as life learned. And for some of the kids, I'm sure that was true, but really the kids at my school had all done an incredible job and have done very well as adults as well. The thing that I think is important is being able to notice the raw talent that you've got in front of you and whether that's been honed and shaped and fed or not. That's going to be the big key. Is this someone who's ready? And by the time Edmund got to Faria, he was ready. For one thing, he was bored off his butt, right? Because he'd been in solitary forever, but also just time of life. He was primed. I went back and I got my teaching degree when I was 24. If I had gone back and gotten it right out of my undergrad, I wouldn't have appreciated it nearly as much. But getting it a few years after working as a, as a grown-up, allegedly, yeah, that worked a lot better for me. So I am really appreciative of Christine and the time she took to write the email. And a big thank you to Justin for reading it for us. Ah, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. The closer we get to Edmund being the Count, the more fascinated I am getting by Dumas' writing. But before we get to our discussions of Dumas' writing, I have two really cool voicemails that I got this week that I am going to play for you now back to back. The first one refers to A.T.'s call in from last week about gravity. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I hope you went and looked at that Rosencrantz and Kildensterner Sterner Dead video. It just still actually makes me snort is what it does. I laugh so hard at different points in that movie. So Rosencrantz and Kildensterner Sterner Dead, link in craftlit.com slash 416. And this week, first we hear from AT, and then we will hear some very interesting information from Emily. All right, here we go. Hi, Heather. This is Ann Planton again. A.T. Blanton, yada, yada, yada. And I was just thinking about the comment I left last week about uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, the one you played on the air, and horribly embarrassing because, you know, I don't know why I don't think you're going to play these things on the air because, you know, you're like a parent and you're going to. But anyway, I was just thinking, you know what, that stone may very well have set that 32-pound shot might have saved Dante's life because it's going to force him to go feet first into the water instead of his having flailed about because he wasn't expecting to be thrown overboard or off the cliff. So he would have gone straight down. It would have forced him to go straight down like a corpse would have. Anyway, I don't know why that popped into my head this morning. 
the drive to work can be pretty bad without the kind of funny crystal to listen to. Anyway, the shot did have another effect. It might have saved Dante's life because he didn't hit the water head first and he didn't have a chance to uh you know, jerk him so that he was he felt just like a corpse would have. So anyway, that's that's it for me today. I'll see you later on Crafty Chat if your sister hasn't had her baby. So talk to you later. Bye. Hi Heather. It's Peggy from Severn, Maryland. And if you hear a small person in the background, that is Emily of Edgewater, Maryland. And we are both craft lit listeners. So we were listening to the latest chapters and you were talking about how it was implausible that Edmund, after years in prison, would have been able to island hop in the Mediterranean. I am an American Red Cross swim instructor, but I'd like to let you and the listeners know there are actually three survival strokes that Dante would have probably been aware of. The first is side stroke, which uh, the person, you know, lays on one side and uses their arms and legs to propel them forward, but also allows the person to keep their head mostly above the water. So he would have been able to look for a coastline and at the stars to navigate. The second is called elementary backstroke and is taught to children in swimming lessons today as tickle tea touch, where a person lays on their back and sweeps their arms and legs together almost like a jellyfish to propel them backwards in the water, but you'd still be able to keep an eye out for coastlines and stars. The third is called literally survival stroke, and the person lies face down in the water with their arms above their head, and when you need to breathe, the person sweeps their arms down and to their sides to propel them forward and also propel their head up to take a breath. None of these strokes uses a whole lot of energy. They're all fairly simple and easy to do. They're also easy to rest from and are designed to be used in emergency situations where someone may be floating for a little while. In fact, the kick for side stroke is strong enough and powerful enough to be used to propel two people through the water and one of them can be unconscious. So it, it'll move you. And I just wanted to let you and the listeners know that it's possible that he could have done the swimming himself, but probably not with one of the traditional strokes that we think of. So anyway, that's my two cents. Thanks for, for the show, and I can't wait for next week's chapters. I didn't know the names for all of those things. <laughs> I guess I do them. And now there's new names for things for teaching kids. I love that. So thank you, A.T. Thank you, Emily. And yeah, duh. I mean, at one point I'd even thought, well, I know I can tread water for a really long time. But then I could really only come up with treading water and floating as two options. And then I started thinking about the fact that when I was younger and skinnier, floating wasn't really an option. And God knows Dantes is going to be skinny right now. But now I know there are other strokes that I'm sure he would have known of and could have done. And how nice for it all to be plausible. That's kind of the fun thing when you have a, an author who does something that's really extraordinary to the main character. And then you find out that, well, no, the science behind it, that's, that's actually really real. Like The Martian. When you read The Martian, you go, oh, there's no way. And then you go check Neil deGrasse Tyson. Wow, no, there's a way. <laughs> all right, then. Go science. So this week, there are truly only a couple of terms that either I hadn't heard before 
or they're being used in a way that I hadn't heard them being used before. So either way, I had to look them up. The first one is celerity. And I'm kind of surprised that I haven't either come across this before or that I came across it and it didn't pop out at me before. But it's C-E-L-E-R-I-T-Y, celerity. And it just means moving quickly. And I've never actually seen a word defined this way in the dictionary, but it's it's a noun. And then the descriptor after that says archaic literary. Does this only show up in books now? I have no idea. But it comes from the Latin celer, C-E-L-E-R, and that goes into celeritas. And then you get celerity in French, old French, and that's spelled C-E-L-E-R-I-T-E, and then it becomes celerity, spelled the way that we know it, C-E-L-E-R-I-T-Y, in the late 15th century. So word's been around a long time, dude. The usage over time dropped off precipitately after this book came out, and by 1950 was pretty much unused, except evidently in literature. So that was one term. Then there's chamois, which I am familiar with as a special kind of, not rag, but a cloth that is hyper-absorbent. Really good for drying off a car if you are washing the car outside. But there's another definition for chamois, which is actually the primary definition, which is an agile goat slash antelope with short hooked horns, which is found in mountainous areas of Europe from Spain to the Caucasus. So, little mountain goat guy. So chamois. Mm-hmm. And the last term, which I've heard before and just never bothered to think much about, is interstices. This is, if you're, if you're in a, a space and light is filtering in through cracks, like a space between the shutters or space at the top of the, the window frame area, the light is coming in above the curtain. Those would be interstices. That would be what the light was coming through. And it's a descriptive term that today, I think, makes part of a setting description just that much richer. And so I didn't want to not give that to you in case, like me, you had heard it and kind of vaguely understood what it meant, but never really got a definition for it. There's nothing else that I think I need to give you this week. But there's a couple things for us to talk about afterwards. And there are a couple of stretches of beautiful writing in these chapters as well. And there's a couple of places where I went and I checked the Victorian against the new edition. And I have to say, again, it's it's kind of like the difference between the King James Bible and a modern translation of the Bible. The King James Bible sounds more poetic to my ear. And the modern translations sound like kind of reading a history book, I guess. There's just a disconnect for me. And I don't know if that was because you hear the poetic King James Version in literature. And so somehow that's just psychically connected to poetry. Or if there's something just kind of, I don't know, is there just some kind of de facto, wow, that sounds like poetry thing? I have no idea. But doesn't really matter one way or the other because today all I wanted to say was the Victorian translation, I think it's prettier than the translation sections that are 
different, translated differently in the modern translation. Not always true. Sometimes I think the clarity of the new translation is better. Sometimes I think it's actually phrased better. But in today's case, the poetic pieces in our chapters today, 23 and 24, I think they're beautiful here. So let's listen. Chapters 23 and 24 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Read for us by David Clark. Chapter 23. The Island of Monte Cristo. Thus, at length, by one of the unexpected strokes of fortune which sometimes befall those who have for a long time been the victims of an evil destiny, Dante was about to secure the opportunity he wished for, by simple and natural means, and land on the island without incurring any suspicion. One night more, and he would be on his way. The night was one of feverish distraction, and in its progress visions good and evil passed through Dante's mind. If he closed his eyes, he saw Cardinal Spada's letter written on the wall in characters of flame. If he slept for a moment, the wildest dreams haunted his brain. He ascended into grottoes, paved with emeralds, with panels of rubies, and the roof glowing with diamond stalactites. Pearls fell drop by drop, as subterranean waters filter in their caves. Edmond, amazed, wonderstruck, filled his pockets with the radiant gems, and then returned to daylight, when he discovered that his prizes had all changed into common pebbles. He then endeavoured to re-enter the marvellous grottoes, but they had suddenly receded, and now the path became a labyrinth, and then the entrance vanished, and in vain did he tax his memory for the magic and mysterious word which opened the splendid caverns of Alibaba to the Arabian fishermen. All was useless, the treasure disappeared and had again reverted to the genii from whom for a moment he had hoped to carry it off. The day came at length and was almost as feverish as the night had been, but it brought reason to the aid of imagination, and Dante was then enabled to arrange a plan which had hitherto been vague and unsettled in his brain. Night came, and with it the preparation for departure, and these preparations served to conceal Dante's agitation. He had by degrees assumed such authority over his companions that he was almost like a commander on board, and his orders were always clear, distinct, and easy of execution. His comrades obeyed him with celerity and pleasure. The old patron did not interfere, for he too had recognised the superiority of Dante over the crew and himself. He saw in the young man his natural successor, and regretted that he had not a daughter that he might have bound Edmond to him by a more secure alliance. At seven o'clock in the evening all was ready, and at ten minutes past seven they doubled the lighthouse just as the beacon was kindled. The sea was calm, and with a fresh breeze from the southeast, they sailed beneath a bright blue sky, in which God also lighted up in turn his beacon lights, each of which is a world. Dante told them that all hands might turn in, and he would take the helm. When the Maltese, for so they called Dante, had said this, it was sufficient, and all went to their bunks contentedly. This frequently happened. Dante, cast from solitude into the world, frequently experienced an imperious desire for solitude, and what solitude is more complete or more poetical than that of a ship floating in isolation on the sea, during the obscurity of the night, in the silence of immensity? 
and under the eye of heaven. Now this solitude was peopled with his thoughts, the night lighted up by his illusions, and the silence animated by his anticipations. When the patron awoke, the vessel was hurrying on with every sail set, and every sail full with the breeze. They were making nearly ten knots an hour. The island of Monte Cristo loomed large in the horizon. Edmond resigned the lugger to the master's care and went and lay down in his hammock. But in spite of a sleepless night, he could not close his eyes for a moment. Two hours afterwards he came on deck as the boat was about to double the island of Elba. They were just abreast of Maracciano, and beyond the flat but verdant island of La Pianosa. The peak of Monte Cristo, reddened by the burning sun, was seen against the Asia sky. Dante ordered the helmsman to put down his helm, in order to leave La Pianosa to starboard, as he knew that he should shorten his course by two or three knots. About five o'clock in the evening, the island was distinct, and everything on it was plainly perceptible owing to that clearness of the atmosphere peculiar to the light which the rays of the sun cast at its setting. Edmond gazed very earnestly at the mass of rocks which gave out all the variety of twilight colours, from the brightest pink to the deepest blue, and from time to time his cheeks flushed, his brow darkened, and a mist passed over his eyes. Never did a gamester, whose whole fortune is staked on one cast of the die, experienced the anguish which Edmond felt in his paroxysms of hope. Night came, and at ten o'clock they anchored. The young Amelia was first at the rendezvous. In spite of his usual command over himself, Dante could not restrain his impetuosity. He was the first to jump on shore, and had he dared, he would, like Lucius Brutus, have kissed his mother earth. It was dark, but at eleven o'clock, the moon rose in the midst of the ocean, whose every wave she silvered, and then, ascending high, played in floods of pale light on the rocky hills of this second Pelion. The island was familiar to the crew of the young Amelia. It was one of her regular haunts. As to Dante, he had passed it on his voyage to and from the Levant, but never touched at it. He questioned Jacopo. Where shall we pass the night? he inquired. Why, on board of the tartan, replied the sailor. Should we not do better in the grotto? What grottoes? Why, the grotto, cave of the island. I do not know of any grottoes, replied Jacopo. The cold sweat sprang forth on Dante's brow. What, are there no grotto at Monte Cristo? he asked. None. For a moment Dante was speechless. Then he remembered that these caves might have been filled up by some accident, or even stopped up, for the sake of greater security, by Cardinal Spada. The point was, then, to discover the hidden entrance. It was useless to search at night, and Dante therefore delayed all investigation until the morning. Besides, a signal made half a league out at sea, and to which the young Amelia replied by a similar signal, indicated that the moment for business had come. The boat that now arrived, assured by the answering signal that all was well, soon came in sight, white and silent as a phantom, and cast anchor within a cable's length of shore. Then the landing began. Dante reflected as he worked on the shout of joy which, with a single word, he could evoke from all these men, 
if he gave utterance to the one unchanging thought that pervaded his heart. But far from disclosing this precious secret, he almost feared that he had already said too much, and by his restlessness and continual questions, his minute observations and evident preoccupation aroused suspicions. Fortunately, as regarded this circumstance at least, his painful past gave to his countenance an indelible sadness, and the glimmerings of gaiety seen beneath this cloud were indeed but transitory. No one had the slightest suspicion. And when next day, taking a fowling piece, powder and shot, Dante declared his intention to go and kill some of the wild goats that were seen springing from rock to rock, his wish was construed into a love of sport, or a desire for solitude. However, Jacopo insisted on following him, and Dante did not oppose this, fearing if he did so that he might incur distrust. Scarcely, however, had they gone a quarter of a league when, having killed a kid, he begged Jacopo to take it to his comrades and request them to cook it, and when ready to let him know by firing a gun. This and some dried fruits and a flask of Monte Pulciano was the bill of fare. Dante went on, looking from time to time behind and around him. Having reached the summit of a rock, he saw a thousand feet beneath him his companions, whom Jacopo had rejoined, and who were all busy preparing the repast which Edmond's skill as a marksman had augmented with a capital dish. Edmund looked at them for a moment with the sad and gentle smile of a man superior to his fellows. "'In two hours' time,' said he, "'these persons will depart richer by fifty piastres each, "'to go and risk their lives again, "'by endeavouring to gain fifty more. "'Then they will return with a fortune of six hundred francs, "'and waste this treasure in some city "'with the pride of sultans and the insolence of nabobs. "'At this moment hope makes me despise their riches, "'which seem to me contemptible. "'Yet perchance to-morrow deception will so act on me that I shall on compulsion and consider such a contemptible possession as the utmost happiness. Oh, no, exclaimed Edmond, that will not be. The wise, unerring Faria could not be mistaken in this one thing. Besides, it were better to die than to continue to lead this low and wretched life. This Dante, who but three months before had no desire but liberty, had now not liberty enough, and panted for wealth. The cause was not in Dante, but in Providence, who, while limiting the power of man, has filled him with boundless desires. Meanwhile, by a cleft between two walls of rock, following a path worn by a torrent, and which, in all human probability, human foot had never before trod, Dante approached the spot where he supposed the grottoes must have existed. Keeping along the shore, and examining the smallest object with serious attention, he thought he could trace on certain rocks marks made by the hand of man. Time, which encrusts all physical substances with its mossy mantle, as it invests all things of the mind with forgetfulness, seemed to have respected these signs, which apparently had been made with some degree of regularity, and probably with a definite purpose. Occasionally, the marks were hidden under tufts of myrtle, which spread into large bushes laden with blossoms or beneath parasitical lichen. So Edmund had to separate the branches or brush away the moss to know where the guide marks were. The sight of marks renewed Edmond's fondest hopes. Might it not have been the cardinal himself 
could first trace them, in order that they might serve as a guide for his nephew in the event of a catastrophe, which he could not foresee would have been so complete. This solitary place was precisely suited to the requirements of a man desirous of burying treasure. Only, might not these betraying marks have attracted other eyes than those for whom they were made? And had the dark and wondrous island indeed faithfully guarded its precious secret? It seemed, however, to Edmond, who was hidden from his comrades by the inequalities of the ground, that at sixty paces from the harbour the mark ceased. Nor did they terminate at any grotto. A large round rock, placed solidly on its base, was the only spot to which they seemed to lead. Edmond concluded that perhaps instead of having reached the end of the route, he had only explored its beginning, and he therefore turned round and retraced his steps. Meanwhile his comrades had prepared the repast, had got some water from a spring, spread out the fruit and bread, and cooked a kid. Just at the moment when they were taking the dainty animal from the spit, they saw Edmond springing with the boldness of a chamois from rock to rock, and they fired the signal agreed upon. The sportsman instantly changed his direction and ran quickly towards them. But even while they watched his daring progress, Edmund's foot slipped and they saw him stagger on the edge of a rock and disappear. They all rushed towards him, for all loved Edmond in spite of his superiority. Yet Jacopo reached him first. He found Edmond lying prone, bleeding and almost senseless. He had rolled down a declivity of twelve or fifteen feet. They poured a little rum down his throat, and his remedy, which had before been so beneficial to him, produced the same effect as formerly. Edmond opened his eyes, complained of great pain in his knee, a feeling of heaviness in his head, and severe pains in his loins. They wished to carry him to the shore, but when they touched him, although under Jacopo's directions, he declared with heavy groans that he could not bear to be moved. It may be supposed that Dante did not now think of his dinner, but he insisted that his comrades, who had not his reasons for fasting, should have their meal. As for himself, he declared that he had only need of a little rest, and that when they returned he should be easier. The sailors did not require much urging. They were hungry, and the smell of the roasted kid was very savoury, and your tars are not very ceremonious. An hour afterwards they returned. All that Edmond had been able to do was to drag himself about a dozen paces forward to lean against a moss-grown rock. But instead of growing easier, Dante's pains appeared to increase in violence. The old patron, who was obliged to sail in the morning in order to land his cargo on the frontiers of Piedmont and France, between Nice and Fréjus, urged Dante to try and rise. <clears throat> Edmond made great exertions in order to comply, but at each effort he fell back, moaning and turning pale. "'He has broken his ribs,' said the commander in a low voice. "'No matter, he is an excellent fellow, and we must not leave him. We will try and carry him on board the tartan.' Dante declared, however, that he would rather die where he was than undergo the agony which the slightest movement cost him. "'Well,' said the patron, let what may happen, it shall never be said that we deserted a good comrade like you. We will not go till evening. This very much astonished the sailors, although not one opposed it. The patron was so strict that this was the first time they had ever seen him give up an enterprise, 
or even delay in its execution. Dante would not allow that any such infraction of regular and proper rules should be made in his favour. No, no, he said to the patron. I was awkward, and it is just that I pay the penalty of my clumsiness. Leave me a small supply of biscuit, a gun, powder, and balls to kill the kids or defend myself at need, and a pickaxe that I may build a shelter if you delay in coming back for me. But you die of hunger, said the patron. I would rather do so, was Edmond's reply than suffer the inexpressible agonies which the slightest movement causes me. The patron turned towards his vessel, which was rolling on the swell in the little harbour, and with sails partly set, would be ready for sea when her toilet should be completed. "'What are we to do, Maltese?' asked the captain. "'We cannot leave you here so, and yet we cannot stay.' "'Go, go,' exclaimed Dante." We shall be absent at least a week, said the patron, and then we must run out of our course to come here and take you up again. Why, said Dante, if in two or three days you hail any fishing boat, desire them to come here to me. I will pay twenty-five piastres for my passage back to Leghorn. If you do not come across one, return for me. The patron shook his head. Listen! Captain Baldi, there's one way of settling this, said Jacopo. Do you go, and I will stay and take care of the wounded man. And give up your share of the venture, said Edmond, to remain with me? Yes, said Jacopo, and without any hesitation. You are a good fellow, and a kind-hearted messmate, replied Edmond and heaven will recompense you for your generous intentions. But I do not wish anyone to stay with me. A day or two of rest will set me up, and I hope I shall find among the rocks certain herbs most excellent for bruises. A peculiar smile passed over Dante's lips. He squeezed Jacopo's hand warmly, but nothing could shake his determination to remain, and remain alone. The smugglers left with Edmond what he had requested and set sail, but not without turning about several times and each time making signs of a cordial farewell, to which Edmond replied with his hand only, as if he could not move the rest of his body. Then, when they had disappeared, he said with a smile, "'It is strange that it should be among such men that we find proofs of friendship and devotion.' Then he dragged himself cautiously to the top of a rock, from which he had full view of the sea, and thence he saw the tartan complete her preparations for sailing, weigh anchor, and, balancing herself as gracefully as a waterfowl ere it takes to the wing, set sail. At the end of an hour she was completely out of sight. At least it was impossible for the wounded man to see her any longer from the spot where he was. Then Dante rose more agile and light than the kid among the myrtles and shrubs of those wild rocks, took his gun in one hand, his pickaxe in the other, and hastened toward the rock on which the marks he had noted terminated. And now, he exclaimed, remembering the tale of the Arabian fisherman which Faria had related to him, now, open the sesame. End of chapter 23
Chapter 24 The Secret Cave The sun had nearly reached the meridian, and his scorching rays fell full on the rocks, which seemed themselves sensible of the heat. Thousands of grasshoppers, hidden in the bushes, chirped with a monotonous and dull note. The leaves of the myrtle and olive trees waved and rustled in the wind. At every step that Edmond took he disturbed the lizards glittering with the hues of the emerald. Afar off he saw the wild goats bounding from crag to crag. In a word, the island was inhabited, yet Edmond felt himself alone, guided by the hand of God. He felt an indescribable sensation, somewhat akin to dread, that dread of the daylight which even in the desert makes us fear we are watched and observed. This feeling was so strong that at the moment when Edmond was about to begin his labour, he stopped, laid down his pickaxe, seized his gun, mounted to the summit of the highest rock, and from thence gazed round in every direction. But it was not upon Corsica, the very houses of which he could distinguish, or on Sardinia, or on the island of Elba, with its historical associations, or upon the almost imperceptible line that to the experienced eye of a sailor alone revealed the coast of Genoa the proud, and Leghorn the commercial, that he gazed. It was at the Brigantine that had left in the morning, and the tartan that had just set sail, that Edmond fixed his eyes. The first was just disappearing in the straits of Bonifacio. The other, following an opposite direction, was about to round the island of Corsica. This sight reassured him. He then looked at the objects near him. He saw that he was on the highest point of the island, a statue on this vast pedestal of granite, nothing human appearing in sight, while the blue ocean beat against the base of the island, and covered it with a fringe of foam. Then he descended with cautious and slow step, for he dreaded lest an accident similar to that he had so adroitly feigned should happen in reality. Dante, as we have said, had traced the marks along the rocks, and he had noticed that they led to a small creek, which was hidden like the bath of some ancient nymph. This creek was sufficiently wide at its mouth, and deep in the centre, to admit of the entrance of a small vessel of the lugger class which would be perfectly concealed from observation. Then following the clue that in the hands of the Abbe Faria had been so skilfully used to guide him through the Daedalian labyrinth of probabilities, he thought that the Cardinal Spada, anxious not to be watched, had entered the creek, concealed his little bark, followed the line marked by the notches in the rock, and at the end of it had buried his treasure. It was this idea that had brought Dante back to the circular rock. One thing only perplexed Edmond, and destroyed his theory. How could this rock, which weighed several tons, have been lifted to this spot, without the aid of many men? Suddenly, an idea flashed across his mind. Instead of raising it, thought he, they have lowered it. And he sprang from the rock in order to inspect the base on which it had formerly stood. He soon perceived that a slope had been formed, and the rock had slid along this until it stopped at the spot it now occupied. A large stone had served as a wedge. Flints and pebbles had been inserted around it so as to conceal the orifice. This species of masonry had been covered with earth and grass and weeds had grown there. Moss had clung to the stones, myrtle bushes had taken root, and the old rock seemed fixed to the earth. Dante dug away the earth carefully, and detected, or at least fancied he detected, 
the ingenious artifice. He attacked this wall, cemented by the hand of time, with his pickaxe. After ten minutes' labour, the wall gave way, and a hole large enough to insert the arm was opened. Dante went and cut the strongest olive tree he could find, stripped off its branches, inserted it in the hole, and used it as a lever. But the rock was too heavy, and too firmly wedged to be moved by any one man. Were he Hercules himself? Dante saw that he must attack the wedge. But how? He cast his eyes around and saw the horn full of powder which his friend Jacopo had left him. He smiled. The infernal invention would serve him for this purpose. With the aid of his pickaxe, Dante, after the manner of a labour-saving pioneer, dug a mine between the upper rock and the one that supported it, filled it with powder, then made a match by rolling his handkerchief in saltpetre. He lighted it and retired. The explosion soon followed. The upper rock was lifted from its base by the terrific force of the powder. The lower one flew into pieces. Thousands of insects escaped from the aperture Dante had previously formed, and a huge snake, like the guardian demon of the treasure, rolled himself along in darkening coils and disappeared. Dante approached the upper rock, which now, without any support, leaned towards the sea. The intrepid treasure-seeker walked around it, and selecting the spot from whence it appeared most susceptible to attack, placed his lever in one of the crevices, and strained every nerve to move the mass. The rock, already shaken by the explosion, tottered on its base. Dante redoubled his efforts. He seemed like one of the ancient titans who uprooted the mountains to hurl against the father of the gods. The rock yielded, rolled over, bounded from point to point, and finally disappeared in the ocean. On the spot it had occupied was a circular space, exposing an iron ring let into a square flagstone. Dante uttered a cry of joy and surprise. Never had a first attempt been crowned with more perfect success. He would fain have continued, but his knees trembled, and his heart beat so violently, and his sight became so dim that he was forced to pause. This feeling lasted but for a moment. Edmond inserted his lever in the ring and exerted all his strength. The flagstone yielded and disclosed steps that descended until they were lost in the obscurity of a subterraneous grotto. Anyone else would have rushed on with a cry of joy. Dante turned pale, hesitated, and reflected. Come, said he to himself, be a man. I am accustomed to adversity. I must not be cast down by the discovery that I have been deceived. What then would be the use of all I have suffered? The heart breaks when, after having been elated by flattering hopes, it sees all its illusions destroyed. Faria has dreamed this. The Cardinal Spada buried no treasure here, but perhaps he never came here, or if he did, César Borgia, the intrepid adventurer, the stealthy and indefatigable plunderer, has followed him, discovered his traces, pursued them as I have done, raised the stone, and descending before me, has left me nothing. He remained motionless and pensive, his eyes fixed on the gloomy aperture that was open at his feet. Now that I expect nothing, now that I no longer entertain the slightest hopes, the end of this adventure becomes simply a matter of curiosity. And he remained again motionless and thoughtful. Yes, yes, 
This is an adventure worthy a place in the varied career of that royal bandit. This fabulous event formed but a link in a long chain of marvels. Yes, Borgia has been here, a torch in one hand, a sword in the other, and within twenty paces, at the foot of this rock, perhaps two guards kept watch on land and sea while their master descended, as I am about to descend, dispelling the darkness before his awe-inspiring progress. But what was the fate of the guards, who thus possessed his secret? asked Dante of himself. The fate, replied he, smiling, of those who buried Alarich. Yet he had come, thought Dante. He would have found the treasure, and Borgia, he would have compared Italy to an artichoke, which he would devour leaf by leaf, knew too well the value of time to waste it in replacing this rock. I will go down. Then he descended, a smile on his lips, and murmuring that last word of human philosophy. Perhaps. But instead of the darkness, and the thick and mephitic atmosphere he had expected to find, Dante saw a dim and bluish light, which as well as the air entered not merely by the aperture he had just formed, but by the interstices and crevices of the rock which were visible from without, and through which he could distinguish the blue sky and the waving branches of the evergreen oaks, and the tendrils of the creepers that grew from the rocks. After having stood a few minutes in the cavern, the atmosphere of which was rather warm than damp, Dante's eyes, habituated as it was to darkness, could pierce even to the remotest angles of the cavern, which was of granite that sparkled like diamonds. Alas, said Edmond, smiling, these are the treasures the cardinal has left, and the good abbe, seeing in a dream these glittering walls, has indulged in fallacious hopes. But he called to mind the words of the will which he knew by heart. In the farthest angle of the second opening, said the cardinal's will, he had only found the first grotto. He had now to seek the second. Dante continued his search. He reflected that his second grotto must penetrate deeper into the island. He examined the stones and sounded one part of the wall where he fancied the opening existed, masked for precaution's sake. The pickaxe struck for a moment with a dull sound that drew out of Dante's forehead large drops of perspiration. At last it seemed to him that one part of the wall gave forth a more hollow and deeper echo. He eagerly advanced, and with a quickness of perception that no one but a prisoner possesses, saw that there, in all probability, the opening must be. However, he, like César Borgia, knew the value of time, and in order to avoid fruitless toil, he sounded all the other walls with his pickaxe, struck the earth with the butt of his gun, and finding nothing that appeared suspicious, returned to that part of the wall whence issued the consoling sound he had before heard. He again struck it, and with greater force. Then a singular thing occurred. As he struck the wall, pieces of stucco similar to that used in the groundwork of arabesques broke off and fell to the ground in flakes exposing a large white stone. The aperture of the rock had been closed with stones. Then this stucco had been applied and painted to imitate granite. Dante struck with the sharp end of his pickaxe, which entered some way between the interstices. It was there he must dig. But by some strange play of emotion, in proportion as the proofs that Faria had not been deceived became stronger, 
so did his heart give way, and a feeling of discouragement stole over him. This last proof, instead of giving him fresh strength, deprived him of it. The pickaxe descended, or rather fell. He placed it on the ground, passed his hand over his brow, and remounted the stairs, alleging to himself as an excuse a desire to be assured that no one was watching him, but in reality because he felt that he was about to faint. The island was deserted, and the sun seemed to cover it with its fiery glance. Afar off, a few small fishing boats studied the bosom of the blue ocean. Dante had tasted nothing, but he thought not of hunger at such a moment. He hastily swallowed a few drops of rum and again entered the cavern. The pickaxe, that had seemed so heavy, was now like a feather in his grasp. He seized it and attacked the wall. After several blows, he perceived that the stones were not cemented, but had been merely placed one upon the other and covered with stucco. He inserted the point of his pickaxe, and using the handle as a lever, with joy soon saw the stone turn as if on hinges and fall at his feet. He had nothing more to do now, but with the iron tooth of the pickaxe to draw the stones towards him one by one. The aperture was already sufficiently large for him to enter, but by waiting he could still cling to hope and retard the certainty of deception. At last, after renewed hesitation, Dante entered the second grotto. The second grotto was lower and more gloomy than the first. The air that could only enter by the newly formed opening had the mephitic smell Dante was surprised not to find in the outer cavern. He waited in order to allow pure air to displace the foul atmosphere, and then went on. At the left of the opening was a dark and deep angle, but to Dante's eyes there was no darkness. He glanced around his second grotto. It was like the first, empty. The treasure, if it existed, was buried in this corner. The time had at length arrived. Two feet of earth removed, and Dante's fate would be decided. He advanced toward the angle, and summoning all his resolution, attacked the ground with the pickaxe. At the fifth or sixth blow, the pickaxe struck against an iron substance. Never did funeral knell, never did alarm bell, produce a greater effect on the hearer. Had Dante found nothing, he could not have become more ghastly pale. He again struck his pickaxe into the earth, and encountered the same resistance, but not the same sound. It is a casket of wood bound with iron, thought he. At this moment a shadow passed rapidly before the opening. Dante seized his gun, sprang through the opening, and mounted the stair. A wild goat had passed before the mouth of the cave, and was feeding at a little distance. This would have been a favourable occasion to secure his dinner, but Dante feared lest the report of his gun should attract attention. He thought a moment, cut a branch of a resinous tree, lighted it at the fire at which the smugglers had prepared their breakfast, and descended with this torch. He wished to see everything. He approached the hole he had dug, and now, with the aid of the torch, saw that his pickaxe had in reality struck against iron and wood. He planted his torch in the ground and resumed his labour. In an instant, a space three feet long by two feet broad was cleared, and Dante could see an oaken coffer, bound with cut steel. In the middle of the lid he saw engraved on a silver plate which was still untarnished, the arms of the Spada family, viz. a sword, 
pale, on an oval shield like all the Italian armorial bearings, and surmounted by a cardinal's hat. Dante easily recognized them. Faria had so often drawn them for him. There was no longer any doubt. The treasure was there. No one would have been at such pains to conceal an empty casket. In an instant he had cleared every obstacle away, and he saw successively the lock placed between two padlocks and the two handles at each end, all carved as things were carved at that epoch, when art rendered the commonest metals precious. Dante seized the handles and strove to lift the coffer. It was impossible. He sought to open it. Lock and padlock were fastened. These faithful guardians seemed unwilling to surrender their trust. Dante inserted the sharp end of the pickaxe between the coffer and the lid, and pressing with all his force on the handle, burst open the fastenings. The hinges yielded in their turn and fell, still holding in their grasp fragments of the wood, and the chest was open. Edmond was seized with vertigo. He cocked his gun and laid it beside him. He then closed his eyes as children do in order that they may see in the resplendent night of their own imagination more stars than are visible in the firmament. Then he reopened them and stood motionless with amazement. Three compartments divided the coffer. In the first blazed piles of golden coin. In the second were ranged bars of unpolished gold which possessed nothing attractive save their value. In the third... Edmund grasped handfuls of diamonds, pearls, and rubies, which as they fell on one another sounded like hail against the glass. After having touched, felt, examined these treasures, Edmund rushed through the caverns like a man seized with frenzy. He leapt on a rock from whence he could behold the sea. He was alone, alone with these countless, these unheard-of treasures. Was he awake, or was it but a dream? He would have fain have gazed upon his gold, and yet he had not strength enough. For an instant he leaned his head in his hands as if to prevent his senses from leaving him, and then rushed madly about the rocks of Monte Cristo, terrifying the wild goats and scaring the sea-fowls with his wild cries and gestures. Then he returned, and still unable to believe the evidence of his senses, rushed into the grotto, and found himself before this mine of gold and jewels. This time... He fell on his knees, and clasping his hands convulsively, uttered a prayer intelligible to God alone. He soon became calmer and more happy, for only now did he begin to realise his felicity. He then set himself to work to count his fortune. There were a thousand ingots of gold, each weighing from two to three pounds. Then he piled up twenty-five thousand crowns, each worth about eighty francs of our money, and bearing the effigies of Alexander the Sixth and his predecessors. And he saw that the complement was not half empty, and he measured ten double handfuls of pearls, diamonds, and other gems, many of which, mounted by the most famous workmen, were valuable beyond their intrinsic worth. Dante saw the light gradually disappear, and fearing to be surprised in the cavern, left it, his gun in his hand, a piece of biscuit and a small quantity of rum formed his supper, and he snatched a few hours' sleep, lying over the mouth of the cave. It was a night of joy and terror, such as this man of stupendous emotions had already experienced twice or thrice in his lifetime.
End of chapter 24. He got the treasure, he got the treasure, and it is real, and it is real. <laughs> I hope I didn't give it away early that he was going to get the treasure today. I was so excited. But he did. And wasn't that beautiful? And what an interesting description of how he got it. That Cardinal Spada was so smart and slid the big giant rock down on top of another rock to block the entrance. But that Woodley wasn't blocking the entrance. That was blocking the next piece of the puzzle that Dante had to get through, lifting the flagstone that had the iron ring in it. And then, because that first chamber has all the interstices and actually has clean air filtering through, the chamber isn't musty and gross and dank and disgusting. It's it's kind of pleasant, even though it's been sealed up ostensibly this whole time. And then to have found the second chamber and that be kind of Egyptian tomb-like and all stuffy. And then to figure out where the treasure was buried is so awesome. Now be honest with me. When Edmund first falls and Jacopo finds him broken and bloody at the base of the stone, did you believe him? I'll tell you, the first time I read through this, I totally bought that he had just <laughs> bit it big time and had really hurt himself because I'd been thinking all the way along. Edmund will get himself in a position where you finally think he's free and then something horrible happens. And then you think he's going to make it again and then something sets him back. And then you think he's there. Oh, no. And then something else sets him back. And I thought, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Please don't, don't do this to him again. The kid has gone through too much. The kid, he's 33. He's gone through too much. Please give him a break. And yay, he totally played them. Interesting that one of his thoughts as they leave him with food and water and a gun and a pickaxe, one of his thoughts is, huh, go figure. It's here among the quote unquote bad guys that you find what looks like real friendship. <laughs> that reaction, coupled with Dante's thinking when chapter 23 started, when he is at the helm and he wants to take the solitary shift. He wants to let them go get some sleep so that he can be up on deck by himself piloting the boat. That coupled with this kind of a third person response, and I don't mean third person literally, I mean Dante's, is kind of looking at his own life from a third person limited narrator's point of view, kind of narrating his own life. Wasn't oh, that interesting? These guys seem to be so kind to Edmond, and yet they're nothing but a bunch of smugglers. That's a sense that we're going to be getting from Dante's for a little while longer yet. This kind of a dissociative moment that comes and goes for Edmond between him almost watching himself and his sense that he is quite definitely not connected, which makes perfect sense, right? I mean, after all those years in prison, why would you feel any connection to outside society? Admittedly, things changed more slowly in Dumas' day than it does now. You know, if you went into prison 14 years ago, think of all the things that would change between then and now. You would have gone into prison before cell phones had cameras. 
and before cell phones really had access to the internet. They were not smart devices back then. They were very limited. They were, I know it's crazy, phones. Just that one change is like a sea change in how society reacts and acts and communicates. So I know that things didn't change that quickly for Edmund, but there's no question in my mind that he would still feel completely disconnected from everyone. The only person he really cared about, Faria, is dead. But there were a couple of things that Dumas did in today's chapters that I thought were part of the the poetic stuff, but also started to make it clear that either Dumas really liked reading philosophy, or he really liked listening to people talk about philosophy and just drew on that information all over the place. The first thing that I thought was interesting wasn't actually philosophy, it was history. And that was when he talks about Lucius Brutus kissing the earth. This is such a cool story. So Lucius Brutus, this is during the Tarquin era of Roman rule. So it's about 500 BC. So Brutus, he's realized that he is not going to live long, that a lot of people around him are getting killed because of power plays with uh, the king and trying to be king and who isn't going to be king and all that kind of stuff. So the way that he deals with that is he plays on his name, Brutus, which, like the word brute, could be used to describe someone who is a little on the slow-witted side of things. So playing on that, he acts like he's not very bright. And he goes with King Tarquin's sons to the Oracle at Delphi. This is, of course, legend and lore and could potentially be history. Uh, Livy is the one who brings us this story originally. So the oracle responds that the next person to kiss his mother, he will become king. The other guys are like, wow, we got to get home. We got to beat it out of here and go kiss mom. Brutus interprets that a little bit differently and fake trips and falls to the ground and surreptitiously kisses the earth. That would be mother earth, right? I know. Totally cool. He becomes king. So that's the Lucius Brutus story. Then there's the line where he says that the last word of human philosophy is perhaps. This one was harder to find, but it turns out that French philosopher and author Rabelais had this to say. Now, Rabelais was an interesting guy on his own, but there are several varied accounts of his death. And one of those accounts is that he wrote a one-sentence will, and the will reads, I have nothing, I owe a great deal, and the rest I leave to the poor. Think about it. So Rabelais had a sense of humor. Then in, I think, four completely separate accounts of his death written by different people or left behind by different people, and it's impossible to know which, if any, are true. It it seems that historical thought is falling down on the, yeah, they're all (laughs) complete lies, but great stories. One of those four is that his last words were, I go to seek a great perhaps. And and the way that that is communicated in French, in my bad French, is un grand peut-être, a great perhaps, (laughs) P-E-U-T-E-T-R-E. And all of these come across as quote-unquote doubtful. But what an interesting way to 
comment on what's coming after death. The great perhaps. And how interesting for Doma to put that into that moment of Dante's discovery, right before the discovery. <laughs> Very interesting. And I thought it, he did a lovely job of letting us live inside the mind of someone who has been through so much and who is on the precipice of gaining so much. And all of the, the psychological games that you would have to play with yourself just to keep going and not to freak out and also not to put yourself in a position where if it doesn't work out, you're just going to want to kill yourself because what's left at that point? You would have been wrung dry. The last few months have been completely focused on this moment. It's like thing one, we were watching How I Met Your Mother and thing one came downstairs while I was getting dinner ready and said, you know, I think some people must think about weddings as marriage, that they're conflating the two. They're mistaking one for the other, focusing so much on the wedding that they don't think about what comes later and that marriage isn't a wedding. And it's not even having a kid. Marriage is this long process. And if all you're doing is focusing in on the party at the beginning of it, you're bound to be disappointed. And the first thing that crossed my mind is, well, where did that come from? And the second thing that crossed my mind is, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And perhaps that's one of the reasons for the divorce rate is that if you go into it thinking that every day or, or not even thinking about it, but if your whole vision of marriage is having a big party, that's all about you. Marriage is going to be disappointing. <laughs> especially once you have kids, because then it's really not all about you anymore. And that's not a bad thing. It's just interesting perspective from a 15 and a half year old. And it's that same kind of thing with Edmund. He's been so focused on getting to this point that if he hadn't found the treasure, can you imagine? Ah, oh, but he did, but he did. So it's all okay. And everything's great. Yay, treasure. Oh, and one word that I forgot to give you before the chapter, nabob. There was the, the insolence of sultans and nabobs. Sultan is a phrase that we use all the time. Nabob is a term that became part of slang, and then it stopped being used at all. And what it actually means is it's an honorific for a ruler from the Mughal Empire, M-O-G-U-L, Mughal Empire. It's nabob in English which is in English mistranslating or mispronouncing something, but it started being used in English in 1612. It's from Urdu, Persian, and the original anglicized spelling would be Nawab, which N-A-W-A-B. It came to be used as someone um, who had a fortune. Like, in, in like, if you think back to the Arabian Nights, the Open Sesame kind of imagery of somebody dripping with riches and jewels and gems and gold and all that stuff. That would be the kind of wealth that we're talking about. And then it kind of morphed into somebody who acted or presented themselves in a, a way that was kind of ostentatious and a little too cool for school, but also, you know, showing off someone who's into conspicuous consumption. That's how it, it started to be used colloquially and is, I think, 
most frequently now when I see it used, if I see it used. That's the usage that I, I've seen. But I thought that was interesting <laughs> that it started as a real word. Who knew? Urdu is such an interesting language. Anyway, that is it for us today. Oh, did you notice a snake came out of the grotto, the cave? First, it was insects and then a snake. I don't know if that was supposed to mean what snakes usually mean when you see them in literature. I don't know. I think it's one of those things that we're going to have to wait and see about and then discuss later. But a snake came out. All right, I'm stopping there. Have a great week. I may be skipping a week both here and on the premium feed. We'll see how things go. And I'll talk to you later. All right, take care. Have a great one. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 